Dr. Gandhi recognized the gravity of the situation, offered his resignation. He has issued his own statement, taking accountability for his actions, which is the right thing to do. His party continues to condemn rhetoric that aligns with extreme or hateful now, and particularly any minimizing of the Holocaust. The decision is not reflective of Dr. Gandhi's years of service as a pediatric heart surgeon or his character, but as a reminder of the responsibilities that we bear as public figures and that our words and our actions are that much more important that we be mindful and very careful with them. I'm Peter McCulley. Welcome to the Today in BC Legislature Report. That's BC Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau as she was firing Dr. Sanjeev Gandhi, the party's deputy leader, who had been slated to run against Health Minister Adrian Dix in the riding of Vancouver Renfrew. Wolfgang Deppner, legislative reporter for Black Press Media, joins me to catch up on discussions in the House. Wolfgang has a long resume of multimedia reporting as well as teaching, and he holds a master's in journalism and a PhD in political science. Thanks for joining us today, Wolfgang. Peter, thank you for having me. Let's begin with BC Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau. That was the main story in the legislature on Thursday. It actually all started on Wednesday last week when the public learned about Sonia Furstenau firing the party's deputy leader, Sanjeev Gandhi, over social media posts. First, some background on Gandhi. He became the party's second deputy leader in January of this year. The party advertised him as an expert on healthcare, and indeed, he is somebody who has a long resume as a doctor in British Columbia and was a very prominent doctor. And in the past, he has spoken out quite vocally about healthcare issues, both in public, in the analog world, and also in the digital world. The second part of that got him into trouble. Gandhi liked a post about another post. And that post, which he liked, accidentally, he says, compared Bonnie Henry to Josef Mengele. And Josef Mengele was the infamous Nazi doctor of the Auschwitz concentration camp. He was part of the medical staff at this death camp. In that role, he helped to select inmates as they were arriving in Auschwitz. Uh, so he decided who would live or die who would go into the gas chambers or who would be worked to death. He also performed gruesome human experiments, medical experiments on living humans, the most vile and most gruesome experiments that you can possibly imagine. As it turns out, this one post commenting on another post compared Henry to Mengele. And when this became public, and it should be said that these posts have been around since September, and when Kirsten became aware of these posts Wednesday night, she ended up firing him that evening. The issue then continued Thursday. She held a press conference talking about the whole situation. And she made it very clear that her party condemned any minimizations of the Holocaust. She obviously accepted Gandhi's resignation. She was trying to control or to minimize the damage coming out of the situation. It should be very clear that Gandhi himself never made that comparison. He just liked the post that made that comparison. So that's very important to point out here. Obviously, a lot of things get said on social media, and social media is not the real world. 
things get said on social media that you wouldn't say in public, or, or you chose a real lack of judgment on Gandhi's behalf. He said he did it by accident, and yes, he said that, that he knows that he caused harm, and he acknowledged the importance of saying the right things in public, choosing one's word carefully, and avoiding polarizing debate. The questions on Thursday revolved around what did the party know? When did it know about this? How much vetting did it do? How is it going to impact the reputation of the party? What is the long-term fallout for the party? I would argue that first no answer those questions, I would say, fairly convincingly, but it's clear that there's going to be some fallout from this. Scandals come and go, but I think this one has a bit of a different flavor and tone to it. Is it too early to ask if there's any replacement in the wind yet? I'm not aware of any replacement at this stage. Sonny first now certainly made the point that the party is going to review its vetting process to make sure that this doesn't happen again. I think the party realizes the severity of the situation, but it certainly takes away from their message. When we look at some of the recent reports around climate change, when we look at the carbon tax debate, this should be the time for the BC Greens. BC is not on track to meet its climate change goals. Canada is not on track to meet its climate change goals. We've gone through a absolutely devastating summer in terms of wildfire season, in terms of drought. The environment should be front and center on people's minds. The BC Greens now have to deal with this issue. So it takes away from their message. Sonia, first now, have made the point that the party stands by its record when it comes to climate change. It stands by its record when it comes to addressing various scandals in the family ministry, when it comes to speaking out on health care. But this is certainly going to take away some of that. I would argue it's going to have an impact on the reputation of the BC Greens Party. You mentioned the carbon tax. It's been at the forefront of the news recently. The federal government announced a three-year break on federal carbon taxes for home heating oil and rebates for heating pumps, starting with Atlantic Canada. And it was hotly debated and tossed about in the BC legislature. Yeah, absolutely. Carbon tax, climate change has been, I would say, front and center for the last two weeks. Among housing, we'll talk about housing as well, but certainly carbon tax issues around who can afford to pay the part of the carbon tax, along with housing, have been front and center in the House. Mr. Speaker, last week the federal government announced a break on carbon tax for home heating, a break that will apply to provinces back east, but won't apply to BC families unless this Premier takes action. As a Premier, I can tell you I'd eliminate all home heating taxes immediately, giving British Columbians the relief they deserve from this NDP government's middle-class squeeze. Cold weather is here. Furnaces are being turned on right across this province. So why won't this Premier provide BC homeowners the same break the federal government is giving people back east and eliminate the carbon tax and all home heating fuels in BC today? Premier. Thank you. Uh... Chair, last week we saw uh, what was clearly a rushed announcement from the federal government. Uh, it protects a particular type of heating. It doesn't protect people. And our commitment on this side of the House has been to take strong climate action while protecting people, providing, for example, carbon tax rebates. Still uh, trying to figure out with the federal government where they're headed on this issue. I appreciate uh, the member opposite now opposes the carbon tax. That's his position to flip and flop over. But for us, we're going to continue supporting people and 
take action on climate. That's what British Columbians expect. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, life has never been more expensive than under this NDP Premier. While the NDP runs record-setting inflationary deficits, family budgets are tighter than ever. People are stretched thin, juggling record-high housing, food and fuel costs, and they deserve a break. Yet instead of providing relief, this Premier is on track to balloon the carbon tax from $30 a tonne in 2017 when they formed government to a crippling $170 a tonne by the end of this decade. So my question to the Premier is straightforward. Will the Premier confirm his plans to hike the carbon tax to $170 a tonne as laid out in his own budget? Premier. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank the member from Nelson Creston for a two-minute statement for help with our Halloween costume this year. And I have to admit I was puzzled. You know, what is the leader of the opposition dressed as this year? And it turns out he's dressed as a weather vane, honourable speaker. <laughs> It's hard to imagine that the same member who rolled out his announcement this morning, rolling back the carbon tax, is the same person that said, quote, I am actually very proud of the leadership role we've taken in the carbon tax. I think if you accept that climate change is an issue, then pricing carbon is absolutely the right way to deal with it. Honourable Speaker, obviously the member is abandoning that position. I look forward to all the details of his position. The member is well aware of the fact that pricing carbon is the right way to deal with climate change. He's just lost the courage of his convictions. Leader of the official opposition, supplemental. Let's be uh, really clear about something here, Mr. Speaker. It's this Premier who has flip-flopped on his promise of affordability. And, and I would remind the Premier that it was his NDP that campaigned against the carbon tax when it was introduced at $10 a ton. And then Mr. Premier did a double backflip to actually now say they want to increase it to $170 a ton. Mr. Speaker, the fact of the matter is, in 2012, while I was finance minister, I froze the carbon tax at $30 a ton, and subsequent BC Liberal governments maintained that freeze until 2017, when the NDP formed government. And what has happened since then? Well, they've more than doubled the carbon tax, Mr. Speaker. And the Premier's own budget documents show that he plans to triple the carbon tax on home heating, costing homeowners nearly $900 a year. So my question to the Premier, after already dramatically jacking up this tax, will the Premier confirm his next move is to more than triple the carbon tax on home heating? Thank you, Honourable Speaker. The oil and gas industry must just be loving these debates since none of us are talking about their record-breaking profits and the damage that they are doing to the climate. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, the reality is the carbon tax is taking $3 billion today out of the pockets of British Columbians, and it's going to go up by $750 million a year up until 2030. When you add that together, that's the equivalent of today giving a 60% increase in today's terms in terms of personal income tax increases to people in this province. And I can't understand how this minister could even fathom that that is fair or affordable for the people in this province. Mr. Speaker, the people in Atlantic Canada are getting relief. They're getting relief on the carbon tax on home heating. Quite frankly, the carbon tax needs to be completely eliminated. But how is it actually is that fair 
for this Premier to stand up and say all Canadians should be treated fairly when one part of this country is getting relief from the carbon tax and British Columbians are getting the shaft. Mr. Speaker, the carbon tax was introduced in 2008. As a matter of fact, the, the leader of the official opposition called it one of his proudest moments in government to introduce in the carbon tax. Those clips just gave us a flavor of the debates in the legislature over the past two weeks. I just want to take the opportunity to review things. Peter, you already talked about the federal government's decision to give people who use oil to heat their homes a three-year break on the federal carbon tax. And that has, of course, angered a lot of people here in British Columbia, and for good reasons. As you already mentioned, this move largely benefits Atlantic Canada. Just by comparison, there are about 30,000 people in British Columbia use oil to heat their homes. So that's less than 1% of all the households in British Columbia. In comparison, in some Atlantic provinces, the figure is 30% plus. The other thing that distinguishes Atlantic Canada from BC is that Atlantic Canada is a big liberal stronghold. The federal liberals have historically dominated Atlantic Canada, but they're struggling in the polls in Atlantic Canada, just as they're everywhere else. So they're trying to shore up a little bit of their support in Atlantic Canada. The other aspect to all of this is the fact that Atlantic Canada is getting first dibs at subsidies for heat pumps. There's, of course, the question of fairness. Why are Atlantic Canadians getting a break on their home heating bills? And why are they getting subsidies on installing heat pumps? That has certainly raised the ire of the provincial government. And I can see why that's the case. BC, at least, is trying to move away from carbon-based fuels. This federal move essentially subsidizes one of the worst, if not the worst, form of heating your home. As Premier Eby will tell you over and over, this move doesn't help people. It protects a form of energy. And in many ways, it brings us back to the 1970s. We had another Trudeau as prime minister essentially playing different parts of the country off against each other. In the 1970s, energy-rich provinces in Western Canada were punished for the benefit of vote-rich provinces in Eastern Canada. So it's almost like a case of deja vu all over again, to quote Yogi Berra here. But this now happens in the middle of a climate change crisis, as many would argue. And it sends an absolutely fatal signal. It sends the signal, at least from the perspective of environmentalists, that you can pare back the carbon tax. It has certainly also raised the anger of those on the right side of the political spectrum who want to pare back the carbon tax even further, if not eliminate it altogether. It comes as no surprise that shortly after the federal government announced these changes, BC United came forward with its own proposals when it comes to the provincial carbon tax. BC is not subject to the federal carbon tax. It has its own carbon tax. The two taxes will eventually align. They have to align by law. But BC United wants to pare back the provincial carbon tax. And I just want to go through some of the specific details of what BC United wants to do. BC United wants to cut the provincial carbon tax for all home heating fuels, so including heating oil and natural gas. It wants to remove the carbon tax on fuels used on farms, and it wants to cancel all pending hikes in the provincial carbon tax. Right now, as of April 1st of this year, it sits at $65 per ton CO2. By the end of the decade, it is scheduled to go up to $170 per ton. 
that'll also be the same amount as a federal carbon tax. So by 2030, the federal and the provincial carbon tax are going to align. On top of that, he wants to eliminate the provincial fuel tax. BC United leader Kevin Falcon has argued that all these measures are going to make things more affordable for British Columbians. To some degree, he has a point. Right now, inflation is coming down, but people are feeling the pain at the pumps and at the grocery store. Kevin Falcon says, look, if we combine these measures, life in British Columbia is going to become more affordable. This has been one of the big themes of BC United. They're hating the provincial government over making life unaffordable in the province. You can also make the argument that this is a very short-sighted move because it's essentially trading off uh, affordability for the environment. Kevin Falcon has made the argument that BC will remain a leader in environmental protection. His party is going to put forward new measures, new proposals to help protect the environment, to help deal with climate change. But it's important to point out that, that these promises by BC United mark a historic reversal because it was the BC Liberals, the predecessors to BC United, who helped to bring in the carbon tax against the opposition of the NDP at the time. More than a decade later, we find ourselves in an upside-down world where the BC NDP, who used to campaign against the carbon tax, is defending it. Kevin Falcon has gone even a step further. He has promised that BC would eliminate the carbon tax entirely if the federal conservatives were to come into power. When asked about this, Kevin Falcon said, look, if the federal carbon tax disappears everywhere else in the country, where it applies, it doesn't apply uniformly across the country, BC is not going to stick with its own carbon tax. It's going to disappear. Now, BC United has made the point, look, the current system is not working. We're going to come forward with environment policies that are actually going to work. But you can already see this issue becoming, to some degree, potentially, I would argue, the defining issue in the next provincial election. The carbon tax was also a big issue when David Eby met with his provincial and territorial counterparts in Nova Scotia. While he was there, he was pretty much the only premier who offered a full-throated defense of carbon taxation. All the other premiers, certainly not Ontario, certainly not Alberta, went to bat for the carbon tax. This triple alliance, if you wish, of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario, very critical of the carbon tax. Atlantic Canada was, of course, also to some degree critical of the carbon tax by accepting these benefits that are coming their way. Wolfgang, does that leave only British Columbia supporting the carbon tax in Canada? Yes, absolutely. BC remains the most ardent defender of carbon taxation in Canada. Other provinces, not called Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Ontario, will say that they also support efforts to fight climate change, but that they need the support, that they need the carbon tax to come down for certain forms of energy. The carbon tax obviously is a big part of the environmental platform of the provincial government. There was also a news conference recently to sign a tripartite agreement that will help achieve both the provincial and federal government's objective of conserving 30% of the land in BC by the year 2030. That happened recently and involved the provincial government, Premier Eby, as well as a host of other ministers, two federal ministers, and the senior leadership of First Nations in this province. The agreement essentially means up to $1 billion, $500 million from the province, $500 million from the federal government, for Indigenous-led conservation efforts in BC. 
So this money will essentially help First Nations lead conservation measures in BC. You mentioned this goal. The provincial government wants to protect 30% of the provincial land base, 30% of the marine area by 2030. So it's a 30, 30, 30 goal. And right now, BC stands at 15% of the land base protected and about 3% of the marine areas. So there's quite a bit of ways to go here to reach up 30, 30 goal. Certainly, if you listen to the politicians who were there, the senior First Nations leader, this money will help go a long way toward meeting that goal. Lots of details to be worked out. More money might be in the offering as well from the federal government. So on the surface, this is going to help. This is an amazing agreement that uh, we have achieved. I believe it's a special moment in time that we are learning about and celebrating here this morning. At the end of the day, Chief Seattle said in the 1800s that we do not own the land, we simply borrow it from our future generations. And nothing is more true than that statement. We have a sacred duty to do our utmost to protect the land, to nurture the land, and this agreement serves our purpose. What I like about the agreement is it's tripartite. Robert Phillips has been preaching government to government for as long as I can remember, and that's what we have here today. We may run into issues and problems along the way, but we'll work through that because that's what it takes to achieve success. We just heard Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, and he very much praised that particular agreement. Only a few days later, the very same Stuart Phillip was part of an announcement by a group of climate change groups he, along with a whole gaggle of other climate change activists, pointed out that BC is not doing enough to meet its climate change goals. He essentially made the point, look, we got to wake up here because we're on a non-sustainable path here. We're heading into very dangerous territory and the provincial government needs to do more. Basically, this group of climate change activists looked at where things stand when it comes to dealing with climate change in British Columbia. Uh, I looked at 10 areas and gave BC a failing grade in three of them and only minor progress in the other seven. And the main message from the group was that if BC continues to invest in fossil fuel infrastructure, which is happening right now, there are any number of big LNG projects unfolding in the north, getting close to completion, that BC will not be able to meet its climate change goals. So rather than pulling back, when it comes to fossil fuels, BC is investing more resources into that industry. And the group speaks of a carbon bomb, which once that goes off, BC will not be able to meet its climate change goals. I actually had a chance to talk to the environment minister about this. And I pointed this out to him. How is it possible that on Friday, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip appraises your government for doing this? And then a few days later, he comes out being very critical of it. How do you reconcile this? And George Heyman, for his part, acknowledged, look, we, we still got a lot of work to do. We're happy to get the input from these groups. And he signaled that there would be more significant changes coming down the line. 
he wasn't the only one who had made that point. Any number of ministers have signaled, look, we'll have some more significant measures coming forward in the next little while. But you can see the tension that's going on here. On one hand, the province is defending carbon taxation on the national stage. On the other hand, it's getting attacked from climate change activists about not doing enough to deal when it comes to dealing with climate change. It's also an argument that the BC Greens are making. Earlier, we talked about Sonia Fursenov, and she pointed this out. She said, look, BC is not doing enough here to fight climate change. Of course, that message got lost amidst all the questions about her uh, party's former deputy leader. So you can really see the tension here between supporting carbon taxation here and then being told, hey, whatever we're doing right now is not enough. When the Today in BC legislature report continues, Wolfgang Deppner talks about housing affordability and new regulations governing short-term vacation rentals in the province. The West Coast Traveler is an adventure in itself with content created by professional journalists and amazing photos provided by our readers. WestCoastTraveler.com is the newest travel network exploring all corners of Western Canada and the U.S. You'll see stunning photos and videos, read engaging travel features from around Western Canada and the U.S., experience all the West Coast has to offer. Begin planning your next adventure. Visit WestCoastTraveler.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Welcome back to the Today in BC Legislature Report with Wolfgang Deppner. Wolfgang, the provincial government brought in some new regulations governing short-term vacation rentals. They say the changes will put more housing into the availability pool, the rental pool. And there's a number of resort municipalities in the province, 14, I believe, and in Parksville on Vancouver Island, the local city council was pretty quick to write to the premier asking to be exempt from that legislation. I saw that as well, and at the risk of disappointing any listeners in Parksville, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't have any inside knowledge, but the provincial government is very committed to pushing this through. In fact, as far as I know, the legislation has gone through, so this is happening here. The short-term rental legislation, however, is not the most significant piece of legislation around housing that is currently on the books. So recently, the provincial government tabled legislation that increases the density on lots that are currently zoned for single residential homes or duplexes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I move that the bill be introduced and read a first time now. Mr. Speaker, I'm pleased to introduce the Housing Statutes Residential Development Amendment Act. This bill will create more homes within reach for people by making it easier to increase the supply of more attainable homes like triplexes and townhomes in existing communities. This bill allows, as of right, four units on larger lots, three units on smaller lots in single detached zones, as well as up to six units on areas close proximity to frequently used bus stops. Second, it requires local government zoning bylaws to allow a minimum of one secondary suite or detached accessory dwelling unit in a single detached zone across the province. Third, it makes updates to improve local government housing needs reports to make them more robust, consistent, and comparable across communities. Fourth, it will require municipalities to plan for and accommodate their housing needs in their official community plans and zoning bylaws. And lastly, it will require local governments to engage communities in development of official community plans and eliminates public zoning hearings for projects that are consistent with municipal communities' official plans. These changes will help streamline the local government development approval process and ensure that more homes can be built in the right places faster. 
The question is first reading of the bill. All those in favour indicate aye. Opposed? Motion carried. Minister. Mr. Speaker, I move that the bill be placed on the orders of the day for second reading at the next sitting of the House after today. You have heard the question. All those in favour indicate aye. aye. Opposed? Motion carried. Depending on where you are, anywhere between three and up to six units can be built on those lots. So if you're sitting on a lot that is zoned for single residential or for duplexes, starting in the middle of next year, July 1st, developers will be able to build at least three, possibly up to six units on those lots. Six units if you're close to trend. That's a big change. That change also comes along with changes to how public hearings are going to take place. Down the line, there'll be fewer public hearings. Public hearings will still take place outside of OCP reviews, but there'll be far fewer of them. And OCP reviews will now happen every five years. OCP reviews, official community plans, they spell out future land uses. Municipalities will now have to review those OCPs every five years. Previously, it's been done on an ad hoc basis. Some communities have gone years, if not decades, without reviewing their OCPs, but now they have to do it every five years. Municipalities also have to plan out their housing needs for the next 20 years. So they have to be much more forward-looking, so much more immediate. Those are three big changes. Another big change concerns more housing. The provincial government has introduced legislation that will upzone, that will increase density around major transit areas. If you happen to live near a SkyTrain station or near a major bus exchange, expect more density in those areas. If you're in Metro Vancouver, within, within 200 meters of a SkyTrain station, you could see developments that are up to 20 stories high. In fact, municipalities have the ability to go beyond 20 stories. If you're in Metro Vancouver near a bus exchange where you arrive on one line and then you change over to another line. In those areas, again, within 200 meters, up to 12 stories, potentially more. Then it filters down depending on the size and location of your municipality. This move will essentially upzone a lot of communities almost immediately. Again, it's another one of those moves that sees the provincial government take a more active, more interventionist role in municipal planning. Now, to be absolutely fair, a lot of municipalities have called for this. A lot of municipalities want to have processes that are quicker. They want to have density. They want to have housing. And in many ways, the provincial government is responding to those needs. Vancouver, Victoria, Kelowna, these are all municipalities that have asked for more density, that have asked for more housing, asked for tools to help push along housing in their communities because those communities desperately need housing. There's no question about it. If you look at housing prices, affordability issues, the cost of housing cuts into the budgets of many British Columbians. And I would agree with the argument that anything you can do to bring down the cost of housing is a welcome development. But there's also the argument that the provincial government is essentially interfering in local affairs, interfering in local democracy. I've spoken to one mayor. He has made the point, look, this is central planning at its worst. It's a little bit exaggerated, but I can see that perspective. When it comes to housing, this government is certainly very different than the previous governments. It is willing to take some swings. It is willing to go out on a limb. To some degree, it's reflective of the need that's out there. Some would argue that it might not have gone far enough. For example, the short-term rental legislation. 
it's fairly restrictive, but some would argue we need to be more restrictive. I certainly get the argument that a lot of communities depend on short-term rentals to accommodate tourists. There's an argument out there that says, look, why are we not even more restrictive when it comes to short-term rentals? Long story short, this government has been very ambitious on housing. It's important to point out that some of these measures are not going to have an immediate impact. Certainly, the short-term rental legislation is going to have an immediate impact. But some of the measures around increasing density on single-family lots, that's going to take some time to filter through. Another point in all of this I want to mention here, this is another complaint from municipalities, is that this is going to put more strain on their resources. If they have to update their OCPs every five years, if they have to make significant changes to their bylaws by June 30th of next year, that's going to put pressure on their staff. Now, again, to be fair, the provincial government has offered $51 million to help with those administrative changes. The provincial government has also offered, has also distributed already billion dollars worth in various grants to help build other forms of urban infrastructure to accommodate the additional density. I would argue that's probably not going to be enough down the line. The municipalities will probably come back to the provincial government that hat in hand and say, look, we need more help here to help put in all these various amenities that you think we'll need around higher density. And I can see that next year when we're sitting down talking about this, we'll be talking about how the municipalities are now under pressure to upgrade their infrastructures for the upzoning. Yeah, absolutely. It's far too early to tell, right? I would argue that some of these measures are going to have unintended consequences. I want to take a position on all this here. You have to applaud the government, at least for trying. Previous governments have not been as ambitious. Certainly, the John Horton government was not as ambitious when it came to housing. All of this unfolds against a larger backdrop, and that is the federal government will make this argument. It is doing its part, but where is the federal government? when it comes to supporting some of these measures. And it's not just supporting the housing, it's also supporting the infrastructure that you need with the housing. The roads, the sewers, the transit. BC is not the only province that's complaining about the federal government not doing its part in helping out. But the federal government is, in many ways, picking and choosing winners. It is picking the communities which are getting money for housing. It is not handing out uh, a large sum of money to the provinces. It's working directly with the municipalities. The province is complaining about the federal government playing regions off against each other. That song is as old as Canada itself. But I would argue that certainly on these issues, those concerns have amplified. The premier would acknowledge as much that BC has not received its fair share of support from the federal government. So a busy couple of weeks to catch us up on the legislature, Wolfgang, and I heard that even through the halls of the legislature, the name Taylor Swift was reverberating. Yeah, Kevin Falcon, the BC United leader, has made the point that the short-term rental legislation will hurt people looking for cheap accommodation going to the three Taylor Swift concerts. He's made a point that Vancouver doesn't have enough hotel rooms to accommodate large events. He's argued with the short-term rental legislation in place, it's going to be more difficult for people to find hotel rooms or to find accommodations generally. They'll be stuck with having to get expensive hotel rooms. And he has a point. Hotel rooms in Vancouver are expensive. And yes, short-term rentals can help alleviate some of the costs. But I don't necessarily buy the argument. If you can afford Taylor Swift tickets of $1,800 and up, 
I've seen the most expensive tickets sell at around $24,000, best seats. If you can afford that, you can afford to stay wherever you want. The overall argument is perhaps not wrong, but on this case, finding a place to stay is, as a philosopher might say, a necessary but insufficient condition to attend a Taylor Swift concert. Wolfgang Deppner is the legislative reporter for Black Press Media. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, YouTube, and Google Podcasts. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media.